Welcome to the section of our podcast we call In Conversation With, where we sit down with sports industry experts, women in sports, and thought leaders and pioneers within the industry. My name is Lorraine, and I'm joined by my co-host, Patricia. Together with our amazing guests, we'll be discussing working data-driven, increasing visibility for women in sports, and leveraging tools such as a sports customer data platform to propel your sports organization to the next level. So without further ado, let's meet our guests. From working in the sports industry for over 30 years, including three years in the U.S. during the 1994 FIFA World Cup and three in Switzerland, to having a vast experience representing rights owners and sponsorship, TV rights and merchandise and licensing, and now working with data and applying it to business intelligence, it is safe to say that Fiona Green has a very impressive background. So Fiona, a very warm welcome to our podcast here. Thank you. It's really nice to be here. Thank you for the invitation to join you. So before we begin, uh, how about an an icebreaker just to get things started? Okay, what are you going to ask me? Uh, We usually like to go with asking what your favorite quote is, or if you have an expression or a motto. Oh, I do. I do. Oh, brilliant. The bee of the bang. The bee of the bang. Did you even notice? I I even answered you on the bee of the bang. (laughs) Do you know that one, the bee of the bang? No, no, actually. Oh, Linford Christie, world-class sprinter of old. And um, I don't exactly know the full sentence, but the point he was talking about is he likes to go on the bee of the bang. And, of course, he's a sprinter. So the minute the gun goes bang, he's off. Yeah. Ah. So the bee of the bang, you've got to go on the bee of the bang. I love that. Oh, wow. I've not heard it before, but maybe I'll start using it now because it gave me some energy and it sounds like... It's a good it's a good way to start off a good conversation. Yeah. yeah and the yeah. funny thing is, Patricia, I didn't even let you finish your question before I answered <laughs> you. I think I even went before the B of the bang. Maybe that's another take on the phrase. <laughs> <laughs> then you can then you can take it and make it your own. So that is yeah. that is brilliant. But I have a number of them. I mean, a, a longtime mentor and friend of mine, Mr. Paul Fletcher, if you ever happen to be listening, I remember he said many, many years ago, when you wake up in the morning. Think about whether you're going to be the gazelle or the lion. The gazelle wakes up and he starts running, but he starts running to make sure he doesn't get eaten. Whereas the lion wakes up and starts running, but he starts running to eat. You're going to be the gazelle or you're going to be the lion? (laughs) I like that one too. I'm always going to be the lion. I'm Mm. always going to be the lion. Yeah. And I'm going to go on the bee of the bang. I'm going to be a lion that <laughs> runs on the bee. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Oh, oh, I love both those expressions. And speaking of being on it and being driven, you are, Fiona, you are obviously a very successful woman in sports and uh, working with data and sports. Can you tell us a little bit more about what being a woman in one might describe as a man's world has been like if you think about you know tech and working data driven and also with the sports it's been an interesting it continues to be an interesting journey for me I mean yes without a doubt the business of sports is still male dominated within that there are areas that are perhaps have a more equal skew particularly in marketing but certainly in data and technology it is still very male dominated and that's not just within sports it's around the world probably hasn't had as much impact on me as it might have some people um, just because I've been around for so long 
may and maybe it did have more impact on me when I was first um, cutting my teeth and making my way. But I'm very aware of it as a principle. It doesn't affect me, but what I am mostly aware of is how we try to ensure that um, we do what we can to break down any perceived barriers, because there aren't actually any barriers, not these days, not in 2022. Um, the barriers of old might have been to do with gender, but we trust and believe that those barriers aren't around anymore. But it, it's interesting to, to, to be one of a handful of females in a room. Something that we spoke about off of the podcast would have been um, sort of imposter syndrome. Like you're saying, there aren't that many barriers or maybe in your experience, there weren't that many actual physical barriers. But I know that we had spoken about, um, say, imposter syndrome and the fact that imposter syndrome is something that really affects women or that women struggle with more than, more than men, for example. And just like you said, being one of the only few women in, in a room can be a bit daunting so I wonder if you ever did um, sort of experience imposter syndrome and if you did how you tackled it and that sort of stuff. Lorraine I would love to spend three hours talking about imposter syndrome because oh my god it's such a strange and bizarre thing so yes I generally um, suffer from imposter syndrome probably on a regular basis when I first learned that there was this principle called imposter syndrome and I recognized some traits I actually did some research into it and the one thing I re remember reading at the time was that as with perhaps many challenges or illnesses or whatever you want to call them there are differing levels and imposter syndrome at its worst can be quite debilitating. And in a business leader, for example, it can lead to you being a micromanager, not empowering your team and your colleagues and workmates to get on and do their stuff because your imposter syndrome is so deep that you just feel you've got to be on top of everything. Mine isn't debilitating at all. What mine does is just often makes me stop and hesitate as opposed to going out with full confidence and full ability. And um when it really came to light, um, when it really came extremely visible for me was, I think you're aware that I wrote a book and then wrote a second edition of the book. The first edition of the book, oh my goodness me, you cannot believe the thoughts I went through. I was very successful in getting it um, published or getting an offer to publish it by Routledge, Global Academic and uh, Management Publishers. And I remember within, within the contract, there's a clause that says, once you submit your manuscript, we're not, we don't have to print it. You know, we, we, this is no legal obligation to print it. My interpretation of that is once I've submitted the book, if it's no good, they're not going to print it. So on the lead up to it actually physically being printed, I had lots of different levels of the Routledge team to go through. And at every single level, I was expecting them to say, we're not going to print this. And also during the process, I had to send the book out and try and get reviews and they wanted 10 reviews from industry executives. So I sent it to 20 people. And thanks to the generosity of other people, I actually got 13 reviews back. But every time a review came in, I was expect I was saying to myself, well, they didn't really read it. They, they, they couldn't have read it because they're saying, I mean, it was really quite staggering. And I remember the point in that first book journey when I thought, well, maybe it's it is good. Maybe there is something here is when a very well-known guy in our industry called Charlie Shin, Mr. Sports CRM himself, he came back to me and he emailed me and said, I'm so sorry. I haven't replied for the longest time because I didn't get around to reading it until recently. But oh, my God, this is so good. 
And I was so delighted because he's somebody I still to this day highly respect and revere his every word and he knows our field so well. So when he came back with that feedback, there was also feedback from a woman called Karen Earle, who's Mrs. Sponsorship. She used to be chair of the European Sponsorship Association. She um, headed and led the development of the sports sponsorship industry pretty much um, in the UK for many, many years or, or throughout Europe. And she came back with the same sort of feedback. So that was when I realised I definitely had it. But again, it wasn't debilitating. What did I do, Lorraine, to manage it? The same that I do now. And whilst I don't know an awful lot about mindfulness, I just take a step back, take a breath, think it through, understand, you know, just do a bit of that. You know, you know what you're talking about. You do understand this and just get myself back out there again. But you're absolutely right. It's proven that women suffer from it far more than men. Um, I don't know why, I don't know the science behind that, but it is something that, yeah, there's probably quite a few females listening in and, and being able to relate to that. But there's lots of books out there that can help people. And I remember I did read one called The MailChimp Paradox, the, Mel, the, the Monkey Paradox, I keep saying MailChimp Paradox. And, and they referred to that nagging, that nagging insecurity being a little monkey that you want to be able to put in a box and lock that box up. Um, so there's lots of books and lots of tutorials out there to help you deal with it. I actually know that book and I started I started to read it. Uh, I didn't quite finish it, but <laughs> maybe that's something I should get back to because um, I do suffer with imposter syndrome as well. And um, but but clearly what you were doing worked because you managed uh, in the middle of all of that to acquire all this success and write the book, but also start Winners FDD. Do you want to tell us a yeah. little bit about that? Like what led to you starting it and uh, take us through the story of that? Yes, yeah, so I actually started Winners before I wrote the book and it was, um, I wrote the book because of my experience with Winners. I'd like to say, Lorraine, for the benefit of all the aspiring business women in the world, that I started Winners FDD or Winners because I had a business plan and a strategy and a vision and I was going to go out and conquer the world. That wasn't actually what happened in my um, case. I was working for a very well-known business, Good Form, and they were doing great things. And I was learning a lot from them. But for various um, various reasons, I didn't continue my work with them. And that led me to setting up winners. But while I was at Good Form, because of the circumstances under which I was hired and the way things evolved, um, I didn't unfortunately get a lot of on-the-job training. Um, it, it's not a secret, but the proprietor of Good Form at the time, uh, a wonderful man called Stuart Dalrymple, he passed away with cancer and he was going to train me and teach me all about this stuff. And um, in his absence, I pretty much had to self-learn. And I learned from my colleagues at Good Form as well. But generally, to try and push the business forward, I was self-learning. And I, so I left Good Form after a year and then set up winners. And I think it was when I was into about year three or four, I thought I need to make it easier for other people to learn about this industry. Because, again, I don't know... I know you're with Data Talk, so your knowledge of the use of data will probably be an awful lot higher than, than other people's. But if you have no knowledge of data and CRM and data-driven marketing and business analytics, and you Google any of this stuff, you just tend to get adverts for Salesforce and Oracle and SAP and Microsoft Dynamics. And when you and even if you Google what is CRM. It'll send you a definition, customer relationship management. But that's not the same as actually understanding what is it, how does it work, what do you actually do, blah, blah, blah. 
So that was the driving force behind writing the book. So winners came first as a result of working for Good Form. And then the book came as a result of my very challenging learning experience. So I stumbled into setting up winners. As I mentioned, there was no strategic plan and I don't recommend that. I recommend you do what other business entrepreneurs do, which is have a vision, have a business plan and then execute it. I stumbled into it. But um, thanks to the brilliance of my team and the brilliance of, of my clients and, you know, just the way this world is evolving. Um, nine years later, we're still here. Self-learning can be so underappreciated sometimes, you know, it's like we, we expect um, that I don't know that in in the perfect world you would have had your mentor to teach you but unfortunately we didn't you didn't have him to teach you you know so it's it's such a I think that in itself is such an encouragement to anyone that's listening out there that just because something doesn't go according to plan doesn't mean that it's all sort of over for you and I know that with winners that you guys actually work with data just like you said and you work with CRMs and all that kind of stuff but um, what do you think, like, how do you think the sports industry compares to other verticals in terms of data? Do you think that the sports industry is like super advanced and we all know what we're doing in the sports industry with data and we're really going for being data driven? Or what do you think? Is it maybe less advanced? That's an interesting question, Lorraine. If you'd have asked me six years ago, I'd have said, oh, the sports industry is years behind, way behind other industries. Now I know that actually the sports industry is like any other industry. Within an industry, there are flyers that are at the top. They are the leaders in the particular field that are doing great things and pushing. And then there's everybody else who's doing stuff, but not particularly brilliantly, but at least they're doing it. People who no idea what they're doing or people who are on a steady path. So we do have our leaders at the top. But I would also say that the leaders at the top within the sports industry are nowhere near the leaders at the top outside the sports industry. And that's because the sports industry and rights owners have been around for years and years. And fundamentally, they are offline businesses. Now, esports is an online um, business run by rights owners. But before esports, all the sports industry rights owners, teams, league, clubs, events, national governing bodies, they're offline businesses, aren't they? And they had to evolve into um, building, developing these digital tools. Now you look at Spotify, Netflix, Amazon, they are pure play online. It's okay, Amazon's playing around with some stores, but as a principle, their business was built in the digital age when data was you know, founded almost. So they didn't have a traditional business that had been functioning for 10, 20, 100, 150 years that needed to learn how to adopt data and digital they actually were born as digital businesses and of course have led they are digital they are the people that have led the industry so obviously with pure play online you would expect them to be way more advanced than anybody else so for example one of my favorite um, online retailers is um, bloom and wild which is a, an online florist and their digital customer experience is way superior to my local florist down the road. Yeah, because my local florist down the road has got this store and she's had to create a website and she enables people to order from, from it. But that's the second part of her business. The first part was her store. And I feel that's the same with the sports industry. So um, we're, we're never going to be able to do what Facebook and Google and Amazon and Spotify and Netflix do. We're just applying their frameworks to, to the way we operate. 
But outside those pure play onlines, the telecommunications industry, the travel industry, the financial services industry, I think they're the same as the sports industry. Some people doing it really, really well. And then everybody else in that different level of capability below that. However, I do think there's a bit of a difference between um, US or North American rights owners and European rights owners. And I, I've thought this in general about sports marketing and the sports sports business that. And again, I've probably been a bit unfair. I'll choose my words wisely. But if you look at the culture of sports in America compared to the culture of sports in, in Europe, and if we talk about I know football plus their leading sport, whether it's NFL or NBA, the culture's still so very different in terms of fandom here is rooted in years and years and decades and decades and generations and generations. Whereas you can you can start up a franchise and close down a franchise in the States, as you know. So I do think there's a little bit of that um, culture that allows the American rights owners to be far more commercially aggressive than we can be. So we still stop and think an awful lot about the fans. We don't even like calling them customers. Let's face it. Yeah. Whereas I think in the US, they're much more brutally focused on um, return on investment and, you know, customer lifetime value and things like that. So they push the envelope. They push a lot harder. So based on my exposure, generally speaking, um, especially the, the big franchises and the big clubs within those franchises are more developed than ours over here. When you were talking about the gap between the, the super agile and like the digitally savvy versus the maybe less savvy, but there's also the versus like men's and women's because most men's clubs, for example, will, for example, will be backed by like big brands, you know, if you're thinking Manchester United, FC Barcelona and, and the like versus maybe the the most successful like women's team they would have like different budgets and different um, levels of uh, digital agility so then um, I know that you at, at, at winners you would work with sort of mitigating and kind of and like you said you want to make it easy for people to to learn how to go digital what do you think and this is maybe a bit of an unfair question because it's it's just so big but I think I think you can handle it. Um, what do you think could be done to kind of mitigate that massive gap, not just within like the men's in um, division, but rather across like male and female? Like, what can we do to sort of give women's teams like a bit of a, a bit of a prop to kind of get to a, a bit of a a working understanding of how they can benefit from working data driven. And just to confirm, it is the data-driven side of digital, not digital. We we don't do digital. We do we do the data side of things. So, um, and you, you've already mentioned the answer, Lorraine. Um, women's sport, generally speaking, is still under-resourced. Still, just does not have the level of resourcing, and it's actually almost a virtuous circle that they don't have the resources because there isn't the commercial value. And when you don't have the commercial value, you don't have as much budget to spend on other areas. And certainly in the world of data, the more you can um, improve your data-driven capability, the more you can generate a return on investment or track where you're spending your money, you know, increase revenue engagement participation. So it's a virtuous circle. What can be done about it? There are better people out there in the market that can answer that type of question than me. Women who or in businesses, Sally Horrocks, for example, that focus specifically on women's sport. What I can say is what we've seen amongst our rights owners 
owner clients is we are now starting to see more of our clients bringing the, the women's team into their workflow. So we're doing things more for the women's women's team version of the game. And um, interestingly, one of our clients has given us the heads up, already warned us that the women's team will be far more ambitious and aggressive than the men's team because the head of the women's division is super advanced in the use of and her understanding of data and digital. And so she's come to this women's team and she's going to really be pushing hard. So I think it's the age old problem. It's down to resources, which are often budget, but they're also people. And of course, people can be impacted by budget because if you haven't got as much money, you don't hire as many people. If you haven't got as much budget, you don't hire the best people. So it's one of those challenging areas. But there is a lot being done. And as I say, there are other agencies who focus on the women's game who could give you statistics around the rise in women's sponsorship. And, you know, I think there was a was it was it just a couple of weeks ago when FC Barcelona had the, you know, a sellout for for the women's game was it the champion the women's champions league or the women's euro whatever and and you know something like eighty six thousand people there to see the women's game which i'm sure five or ten years ago would have been unheard of so things are happening i think the good thing about the um, opportunity for the women's game and indeed any of the other um smaller versions of of a sport so for example um veterans versions or walk-in versions or whatever is they they'll make progress a lot quicker because firstly they're learning from the mistakes of the men's game but secondly we're in a digital world now whereas the men's game was developed in the linear world when the digital world so getting women on the other side of the country or, or sorry getting an audience on the other side of the country for the women's game is going to be a lot easier to generate than if we'd been trying to do it 50 years ago or even 20 years ago. But maybe taking a step back and looking now at just sports organizations in general, you have touched upon uh, why working data driven is important for sports organizations and also the challenges that sports organizations uh, see in comparison to other organizations in other industries. So what would you say is or are the elements that you would think should be included when creating a data-driven approach when you are working as a sports organization? How will you put this into action? I, like you said, you might not have all the tools necessary, but you can start somewhere. So we work on a framework of various principles and um, the five key principles um, are um, strategy, data, technology, process and culture. And data is just one of those five things. The point is you could you could have as much data as you could possibly acquire. If you don't have a strategy for how you're going to use it, if you don't have the right technology to use it, if you don't have a, a embedded processes to enable you to use it and you don't have the cultural adoption to use it, then the data is not worth it. So it's almost um, five five key elements that have to align and be focused on together. And then we work on the principle of um, a single customer view, having that environment where you can see what relationship you have, what the multiple relationships you have with one fan, one customer, one stakeholder. And then, of course, we have to we do indeed need technology, but we always talk about technology being an enabler, not a driver. So we start with what are we trying to achieve? What's what's our strategy? What's our objective? When do we want to achieve it by? Then we um, we understand what technology we're using, what data we're generating. We develop processes 
and we make sure we've got the right cultural adoption. And it's funny when we're doing workshops with um, clients and we're helping them understand more about this bizarre, brilliant, fantastic, crazy, but sometimes complicated world. I always feel tempted to say that each of those five elements are as important as each other. But then I get to culture and I say, this is the one that will bring you down. This is the one that if you don't pay attention to, because cultural adoption is um, so important. You've people, you heard people talk about digital transformation. It's the sexy buzzword of the moment. Any sort of transformation relies on people's inclination to change. And that sits within the culture that, that you've created. And certainly when it comes to data, we see that lots of organisations work very much in silos. So you think about what's the most valuable data in a club, for example. Say if you're a football club, one of the most valuable parts of data is the ticketing data, because it's how many people are actually spending money to come to the stadium. And then another most valuable part is the merchandise data, what people are, which people are actually spending money on merchandise. So you've got two very valuable pots of data, but if the cultural silos in the business mean that ticketing only ever thinks about ticketing and merchandise only ever thinks about merchandise, they won't be bringing those data points together. They won't be thinking, well, who's who's bought tickets as well as merchandise because they're going to be my super fans or who's bought tickets but no merchandise because they're my low hanging fruit. I could sell merchandise to and ditto who's bought merchandise but never bought tickets. So that cultural silo, that siloed thinking, I work in ticketing and that's all that matters. I work in merchandise and that's all that matters. That can be um, replicated across all departments, media, comms, sponsorship, etc. And the more we have that siloed thinking, the more challenging it can be. So cultural adoption is, is a difficult one. But again, we say it should sit within the perfect circle of all five. I'll tell you what, there was a quick tip. If there are any rights owners out there who are doing nothing with data, the fastest start they can get, and the one we always recommend, is just start using email marketing. And if someone says, well, I don't have any budget for email marketing, there are email marketing platforms that don't even cost anything when you're at the basic level. Like MailChimp will let you have 2,000 fans in a database before you've got a charge. So if you are a niche sport or a big sport, but way down at the bottom of the league, you can just start anything anyway. And if you are doing email marketing and data collection, you're doing it really well, then you should be thinking about the next step, the next channel, the next opportunity. So, you know, there's 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 levels of, you know, progress and movement and improved capability continuously within any rights holders. It's not just the people that have never done it or not doing it. There's people who've been doing it for five years that could also improve and make progress. I was going to ask you like what makes a, a good strategy because um, this word strategy is something that keeps coming up in many different conversations with many different people and you put it so beautifully that well if you have the data if you have the technology what are you going to do with it you know and that's where the strategy part comes in and I think you you also touched upon it a little bit when you said just get started that could be part of your strategy you know like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I will figure it out as I go. But I will just start with doing email marketing, for example. But would you have like any other, like a couple more tips on like what, for those who are just starting out, what would a good strategy look like? So again, everybody's strategy is going to be different. And you're right, Lorraine, strategy is an often used word and an overused word in many, many instances. I would say instead of using the word strategy, just say, what are you trying to achieve? and then 
When do you want to achieve that by? And what tools do you have to achieve it currently? And that that sort of starts with the foundation. Now, when it comes to when do you want to achieve it by? Say, for example, I want to achieve it three years from now. The tools that you have starting with may not be sufficient for the tools that you're going to need in three years time. So that what we call roadmap, building a roadmap to get you from where you are now to where you want to be. When we when we start working with clients, whether they're you know one of the biggest global sports rights owners out there or they're a small team league sport, whatever, we start with understanding what we call the current state. So across um, people, processes and systems. And of course, data is within that. We just don't say data because we don't need to. We say people, processes and systems. We figure out what's their current state okay, in all those areas. Then we figure out What's their, we use the term, what's their desired future state? What do they want to achieve and by when? So, for example, we might say, um, I currently have a database of 100,000 engaged fans and I'm turning over X thousand in revenue. By 2023, I want a database of 250,000 and I want an get a revenue of, of Y, OK? So that's your future desired state. And then we look at um, what's going to help you get from here to there again people processes and systems so that's your strategy and that you could be as long or as short as detailed or as succinct as you want but it would be what do you want to achieve when do you want to achieve it by what are the current tools you have and by tools I mean not just software I mean people as well and uh, what tools you're going to need um, to get to where you want to be when you say what what other tips can you give I always say, um, you know, why is such a powerful question? Why? Why are you doing this? Why do you want this? Why are you spending time? Why are you heading? So always ask why. And then another question we always ask um, our team to, to, to challenge themselves with, if they're doing some analysis work, they're doing some um, data work, and they've got what they think is an insight that they're going to give to the client, I always tell them, ask yourself, so what? What, what difference does this make? You're going to tell me that 27% of my season ticket holders are yellow, green, red, blue, whatever. So what? What does that mean? How, how do I actually use that? So asking, asking questions internally um, you know, is a, a great step. Why are we doing this? What do we want to achieve? And so what? That's so simple. That's what makes it powerful. And sometimes we overlook the simple stuff because we think it's meant to be more complicated than that surely you know and Fiona just just listening to you I'm super inspired I'm super fascinated why don't we see that many Fionas across sports across data why is it that we don't see that many women represented across all these different levels in sports in in whatever industry we we know the statistics we know the numbers representation for women can be really really low numbers i can't really ask you why but i can i guess i can ask like how can we i know that this this podcast for example will, will help someone out there because it's helping me with my own sort of reflections and my own so what like what do i want to do and that kind of stuff i'm just going to answer you know you said you weren't going to ask me the question but i just want to tell you something that my, a personal experience of mine 
there are people out there who can tell you why this is occurring. But what I can tell you is, I mean, I'm 55 now, but when I was having a child, having a baby, carrying a baby and birthing a baby, which is still something only a female can do, the pressure was very much on me not to go back to work. Not the pressure from my friends and family who know me, but just general pressure. Now, I don't know if that pressure still prevails because I'm not a mother of childbearing age and, and you know, I don't, don't know anybody who is who talks about such things. But I know back in my day, one of the reasons why there would be less women present in the workforce or present in a certain role of responsibility would just because we've had to make that decision about whether we stay home and do what mothers are supposed to do or we do what we as individuals are supposed to do, what's right for us. One of my aspirations for winners actually is that we get to a scale of business where we can really make a difference to the culture. And I say make a difference, we're, we're limited in what we can do as a small business working with data. But one of the things I'd love to do is have a work environment where women, if they have chosen to have children and they have chosen to go back to work, they bring their kids you know, whatever. And I know that COVID has helped with hybrid working and allowed people to be a bit more flexible when they work. But when it means coming to an office or when it means um, being separated from your child, I would love the opportunity to reduce the impact of that, both the financial impact and the emotional impact, because it does have an impact. And I dream of having a business one day that is of the scale where we can have a crash. And again, I don't know how much of an issue it is these days compared to when I was um, um, having children, but it was certainly something I was very, very aware of. Um, but just just FYI, we've got a very small team. We're a team of eight, but um, we've got four women. So we, we're already trying to make make a difference to a degree. And actually, while, while we're on that, that line of um, conversation, what would you say to some a woman specifically that is listening in and maybe they feel like something like all these pressures or these the way down by all these barriers that you might have not experienced but um, other people have for example and most women experience imposter syndrome which is a big barrier because if you compare like what we could actually what we're capable of and what we actually do they're two different things what would you say to, to a woman that's listening right now a woman in sports or a woman in, in data or both or just in general what would you say to them what what advice would you give them today so for example if there is a woman concerned about going back to work or not because of external pressures of having a baby I would say she has to do what's right for her because her children will always be have a great experience if she's doing what's right for her if she does what's right for anybody else except her then her family will not benefit so Second thing is, if um, if it's a woman um, that's struggling with imposter syndrome, I guess the most powerful thing to tell someone is that they're not alone. Because when you're not alone, it means there are resources, there are people who can help and there are people who can understand. And if there are people that aren't quite suffering imposter syndrome, but still haven't figured out, then I would say, yeah, just go for it and go on the B of the bang. Look, we um, there are more and more people like you, Lorraine, and you, Patricia, who are trying to highlight that this world is for women as well. Heck, we're 50% of the planet, yeah? So this world is for women as well. The sports industry is for women as well. The world is, you know, everything is for women as well. 
Um, so I think that with the work you and uh, you, you're doing, Lorraine, you're doing, Patricia, many other um, people out there are doing, we will we will get the message out and we will continue in the right direction. And look, 100%, if I can do anything to help with that, no matter how small, somebody wants to connect with me personally and talk to me about it, I'll gladly share anything I can, anything that might make a difference to them. Awesome, awesome. You heard it, guys. You should take Fiona up on her offer. And just before we close off, um, are you working on anything exciting? I'm sure you're always working on it, on something exciting at Winners and uh, just in general. But um, is there anything that you're working on that you think the listeners should check out to sort of enrich their own knowledge and transform their minds? So one of the things that we did at the start of COVID or halfway through COVID is we decided to create an online course, an e-learning course for our field. So firstly, if anyone does want to understand more about our field, then it's a great course. It's been really highly reviewed from the learners that have been through it so far. But how about this? The first three women to get in touch with Lorraine and Patricia after they hear this podcast will send them a copy of our book. The one that I had imposter syndrome writing. <laughs> Talk about us going off at the B of the bang. So the first three people will be going off at the, the B of the bang if they just get in touch with you. Fiona. Thank you so much for just taking time out of your schedule to talk to us and to share your knowledge with us. Of course, when you're doing it, you're not thinking, oh, I'm a woman and I'm going to break down barriers. You're just doing what's natural to you. But someone out there is looking at you and going, oh, if Fiona can do it, I can do it. Yeah, thank you so much. This was so inspirational and refreshing. Personally, keeps me also pushing and most likely also Lorraine pushing. And we're just so excited to to continue on this journey that we're doing together. Well, thank you for having me on. And as I say, it's a great thing you're doing to um, generate and spread this uh, content. So it's been great to be a part of it. If your goal is to deliver a world-class supporter experience at every game and you want to know how you can meet that goal and get started today, then visit our website at datatalks.se and fill out our demo form to experience firsthand how we can help you. Or you can sign up for our masterclass or email list to get exclusive materials such as ebooks and case studies that will help you meet your goals better. Until next time, stay productive. Data Talks, we fill the stadium, you focus on the game.